You're listening to Birthing Injustice. I'm Ruth D'Souza, and for those of you joining us for this season, I'm a nurse by background with extensive practical and research experience with new parents. In this series, I'm having conversations about birth, racism, and cultural safety in the hope that they might transform birthing and healthcare into transitions where all people can flourish. I'd like to start by acknowledging that I'm speaking to you from the unceded sovereign lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nations. I pay my respects to all the elders and warriors who've resisted colonisation, invasion and genocide and who share country with all of us. I pledge my solidarity as an uninvited guest to the continuing struggles for justice by traditional owners. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today I'm talking to a dream duo, my friend Gina and her colleague Storm. Gina Bundle is a Ewan Monaro woman. She works at the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne, where she's the program coordinator of Badger Bullock Willem. This means home of many women in the Woiwurrung language of the Wurundjeri people. She's also an amazing artist and probably the best op shopper I have ever seen in action. Storm Henry is a Pichinjara Wiradjuri woman who began studying linguistics at Monash University before she transferred to a Bachelor of Nursing, Bachelor of Midwifery. Storm has worked at the Royal Women's Hospital since 2017 as a nurse and a midwife. She's currently a clinical midwife specialist with Bagaruk Caseload, where she's been working since December 2019. She's interested in birthdays, birth politics and Eurovision. Together, Gina and Storm are trying to change the isolating impact of Western public hospitals for Indigenous people by developing more collective ways of supporting new Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families. So I'm going to start with Storm first. Can you tell me why you care about birthing? Um, Thanks for having me, Ruth. Um, I think there's a lot to care about with birthing. I think... um, My interest in birthing originally came about when I was working at my local um, Aboriginal co-op in Warrnambool in Gunditjmara country, and I sort of became fascinated by the role of the community midwife um, and seeing that her role wasn't just working with women, it was kind of the heart of the community, like new babies, new families, the elders of tomorrow um, kind of vibe. Um, And I think birthing is such a great place where you have the potential to really transform you know, healthcare of families, but also just overall health and well-being of communities in a broader context. Thank you, Storm. That's so beautiful. And um, your answer reminded me of of Naomi Simmons, my first interviewee, who talked about the Māori word for um, midwife or birth attendant, which is kai whakawhānau, which means to make family. And I love your description, which is to make community. I'm going to now ask Gina to say something about why you care about birthing. Well, being a mother um, myself and have my own experience in birthing, um, historically, birthing for me um, in the in the country that grew up colonised, women were forced into a certain way of giving birth, um, and yet I know we had a most amazing 
way of doing those things naturally. Um, you know, women have been giving birth forever, not just in these very sterile settings. Um, and so natural births and what they call birthing on country now um, has always been a part of my interests for a long, long time. Women and children have been a part of what I've done in my work, working life forever. And so it's a, it's a part of, it's actually a big part of a bigger picture that I've worked in all my life. And how did you become the program coordinator of the Aboriginal Health Unit at the Women's, Gina? I actually started off as the Aboriginal Liaison Officer. There was another program coordinator before me um, and others before her. And so the, the women's actually have had Aboriginal workers or an Aboriginal health unit at the women's for quite a long time. Um, the building that we're in now is, is the new women's hospital. Um, there was an older women's hospital up the road a bit further. Um, so Aboriginal health has been on the agenda there for a while. Um, you know, Aboriginal hospital liaison officers have been around for a while also, you know, 20 plus years. And so um, while I was doing other work prior to, to what I do now, I've always had access to Aboriginal hospital liaison officers, um, you know, as a community member. Um, so I've always known about them and my interest has been within the health field of Aboriginal women and, and children. So this has actually been a wonderful, um, probably the final step in my working career to where I am now. Um, I don't see myself going anywhere after this. And, and that kind of leads me to, to a question for Storm. Why is caseload midwifery and continuity of care so important in terms of culturally safe care for Aboriginal families and in terms of closing the gap? I think um, continuity of midwifery care across the board has, you know, been really well researched and shown to have such great outcomes for mums and babies of all backgrounds. But I think particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander birthing women or birthing people when there's a lot of history in hospitals that can make it hard to trust um, not just the care providers but the entire system that having, um, you know, a single point of contact with your continuity of care midwife um, to help you navigate that system and to help you feel seen and supported and um, address your priorities in your health care um, is really kind of essential rather to be an active participant in your own care rather than um, the hospital determining what your priorities are and how you should address them. Absolutely. And I'm wondering, Storm, if you could say a little bit more about trust. Yeah, well, I, there's a lot to say about trust. I think I'm still learning trust. Um, I think, um, you know, historically hospitals have probably been one of the most untrustworthy places for Aboriginal families, Um you know, to come seek medical care, particularly at the women's, which has that underlying philosophy of, um, you know, providing care to women of all backgrounds, no matter what their, um, you know, race or income as that sort of early women's hospital philosophy, to then come to that place, seek care, and then have your baby removed from you at a time when you're such a, a new mother at such an um, emotional time. It just breaks my heart, really, um, trying to imagine how that would make me feel. It's a, it's a really emotional um, topic, um, especially 
in in regards to the women at at the time did actually do an apology also to the um, stolen generation because of their part that they played um, as the government as a government arm of removing Aboriginal babies and, and they acknowledged that. And I think that that was important. Well, it was important for me to feel okay in working in a place like that also because you can't go forward if you don't see what you've done in the past and do it differently. Um, and I think between myself and Storm and the program of the Bagarook team, um, that's, that's only a small part of doing things differently but it's a whole hospital approach that needs to be done differently that will create the trust not only for the staff members but the patients that walk through our doors. Um, but we need to feel okay in how we deliver our services to our women so that they feel that they can trust their most precious, precious thing to us when they come to come and use our service. Um, we, we have big shoes to fill. And I think, you know, we're talking about trust in a cultural sense, which is a really um, a huge thing, but we also acknowledge that so many of the women and people who come through our service might also kind of sit in other intersectionalities where they've felt to us that they, to disclose a, a same-sex relationship and Aboriginality is like a, a double too much to disclose. Um, and so there's sort of a, a sense of trust and safety on multiple levels. Um, when sort of nothing feels safe, we need to make um, maybe things that are some in some cases less easy to hide for some people, their, their cultural identity, um, you know, safe, while they determine whether or not they feel like they can trust the service with other key aspects of their personhood. Yes, that's probably one of the most important parts of our role is, is keeping our women safe mm -hmm. while they're within our system that we work in, um, knowing also that this, this is a system that works against us in, in some instances. Um, but in the same sense, we, we have the responsibility and the duty of care to make sure despite anybody and everything, that the women who walk in our door will be culturally safe and, in, and identify themselves in any way that they choose. And their choice, I think, is the key, key part there. The Aboriginal women um, absolutely have so much agency and just because we offer Bagarok as an Aboriginal caseload model doesn't mean that Aboriginal families are obliged to want to work with us. Yes. Choice, choice always has to come first. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. As in um, times gone past, there was never a choice. Choice was taken from, from people and had things done to them, not work with people to do things together. It was done to people, whether they liked it or not. And so um, the importance of um, people having ownership of their own health having something or not having something, choosing to do something or not do something is so important, especially in the realms of informed consent. You know, it is their health journey and we shouldn't be enforcing upon them what we think is good for them. I think in maternity too, this, this concept of informed consent is something that could be improved on across the board 
you know, that um, all women particularly when declining aspects of standard care, there's that aspect of reproductive kind of coercion and obstetric violence that is really um, less unspoken now, but it's still quite accepted and it's um, kind of really horrifying as a clinician sometimes the things you'll observe and say that's actually not okay and then to see that continue it feels like you're going crazy sometimes you feel like you're living in a um like outside of your body looking in sometimes just at the traumatic things that um has become so ingrained in maternity culture I think also one one of as Storm was saying you know sometimes we see things that aren't okay and while we work within a system like that, it's also important that we feel safe to be able to say, hang on a minute, that's not right. Um, and the hospital is getting much, much better at that, in allowing staff to come up and say, hang on, that's not right. We, how can we do that better? Um, the hospital does encourage um, patients to make complaints. They, they say they want to hear because they can't change things if they don't know about them, um, you know. And so we, I encourage our patients, if something's wrong, this is the process we go down and we need to make a complaint if that's what you want to do because it, it has to be allowed to happen because we're not, in, we're not the bosses of them, you know. We're responsible to them and, and that's really important to see it in that light. We have a responsibility to them. They owe us nothing, you know. They came come to us expecting to be safe and to be cared for. And if anything outside of that happens to the detriment of them, that's our responsibility to fix. And it's really important that we're free to be able to raise our voice and say, hang on, that what happened just then is not right and have that looked at by, you know, escalating it further up the line and being allowed to do that and being comfortable in doing that. It's really important to, to be able to know that that's, that's allowed. Um, and, you know, places like hospitals and other big government departments, you know, they run by a hierarchy. Um, ours is like that, but we can have a voice all the way up the chain. Um, which I think is, is, is a must for any big place. Otherwise, everything gets lost in translation otherwise, you know. But we have voices all the way up the chain. So, and I think that's um, a fantastic thing that the women's have has implemented. One of the things that I'm really hearing as, as we're having this conversation, which is filling my heart with great joy right now, is, is how cultural safety operates in so many different levels and so you had your hospital chief executive Sue Matthews kick off the reconciliation plan in February 2020 by acknowledging the history of the women's and specifically the hospital's role in the stolen generations and making an apology and then you've got this um, pathway for complaints you've got this informed consent um, you also have activities like a monthly yarning circle, the Bagaruk Gathering, which allows new mums and mums-to-be or uh, new parents and parents-to-be a chance to meet other Aboriginal families. I'm really interested in all these beautiful kind of ways in which 
families are supported. And I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about this yarning circle, um, as well as the activities like meet your midwife evenings and so on. Yeah, so unfortunately, COVID has really um, impacted our ability to deliver these sessions face-to-face and our experience of trying to move these um, kind of group activities online has just been that the, um, I guess, with kind of the heart or the authenticity of the group hasn't really well translated into an online world. Um, But the monthly yarning circle, I think, was getting increasingly more popular um, the final one we had just before lockdown last year was um, a really big um, afternoon in a park. We had so many families come. And I think um, one of the areas I'm particularly passionate at, I'd like to see maybe a little bit more growth on, from the women's hospital because as a gendered hospital, um, there is a lot of focus on women and birthing people naturally. But for our families who come through Bagarok who get their culture on the side of their father or the other parent, you know, we could improve I think how do we build up those families in culture so it's really great to have an opportunity where dads and partners can become involved um, meet other mob we've had you know baby cousins meet and you know have families find out that they're related or see family they haven't seen in a long time and it just feels like a really big um, party slash parents group um, and it's quite informal. We don't sort of set an agenda that we're going to talk about X, Y, and Z because there's sort of breakout conversations and we're available if they want clinical advice and to catch up. And really nice to see how big babies are growing and find out how things are settling at home and um, what services can we help link you in with if things are struggling. So a uh, really great time. How important is it for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families to be able to incorporate culture and traditions into pregnancy and the birth suite? And you've hinted a a little bit about the storm, but I wondered if you could say a bit more about that. Um, I think it's so important because when we look at someone's Aboriginal identity, um, that's sort of like, it's your whole person. You can't... um, decide to exclude um, your Aboriginality from medical events or from rites of passage. And traditionally, birth was such a big um, rite of passage that would be how you connect with the women in your community that would cement your connection to your country um, and a whole bunch of ceremony involved in that. And then as like Gina was saying earlier, how we've moved into the hospital space, we've lost that, but now we can... Um, reclaim aspects of that similar to um, um, how Naomi Simmons was talking in your first podcast about the um, placenta ritual that's probably one of the most common ways we see traditional birthing practices incorporated here in Melbourne um, families to take placenta home for burial um, to you know dry some cord and make some art and take placenta to country via um a encapsulated placenta if we can't take it in a plane and um, doing placenta art prints um, and I think there's also now a lot of you know Aboriginal um, aromatherapy you know having ochre sprays and um, kind of 
I guess, modern versions of traditional culture um, that can be easily brought into a hospital space. And that's really important that we respect that. Um, because as Gina was saying, it's just us to facilitate really what the family wants and support them in um, their, you know, plans for birth and their journey to motherhood and parenthood, which looks different for everyone. And it's really nice for us too, especially for families, I think, who aren't, you know, through um, the history of the stolen generation, maybe not connected to their um, initial cultural lands or cultural people um, or their sort of their country, that some of these kind of common practices like placental ritual can really help you connect to your own sense of identity when maybe that's been lacking. And often parenthood is a really um, big catalyst for families to want to explore where do I come from? Specifically, I was happy to know that, you know, family was here, but I want to go to country and I want to connect with family and I want to find out about my traditions and incorporate that into my family life. Oh, I think I think Storm um, just said that so beautifully. Um, and women are taking up those options. Um, we we endeavour to, to provide ways for them to do that within the hospital space um, and we've been doing all of those things um, which has been excellent. Um, we've also been trying to bring some um, mental health issues and activities that come along with that too because birthing in a place like a hospital can be very stressful. Um, because we're the type of hospital we are we actually have women that stay with us as inpatient for months, you know, and then their babies have to stay with us for months after that or they go to the Royal Children's, depending on what the, the circumstances are around. Um, and in saying that also, because of the hospital that we are, the type of hospital that we are, we actually have women that come from the Torres Straits um, who've never been to the city before, who don't speak English, um, English is not their first language. And so um, us who also, where English is our first language, and we've lost our language in that sense, um, it can be a real learning on both sides of the fence. Um, but our main, our main um, objective is to make sure that those, those women are protected um, to the best of our ability while they're in our, in our care and in the setting that they're totally, totally not used to. Um, and so it's a real, a real mixture of cultures, even though we're the one. You know, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander um, people have a connection that's been for never-ending. And to bring them both together and to, for us as workers within a place like that, to incorporate all the different cultures because um, we're just not one person. We're different, made up of different tribes, different territories, different lands, and it's just all of those different um, ceremonies, um, languages, you know, all the revival that has been happening, which is so wonderful. We try and incorporate people's individual um identities as well and and so it becomes a real tightrope in some instances because there's a lot the same but there's a hell of a lot that's different from one one tribal group to another and you know uh, everybody's learning 
um, the revival of those cultures and ceremonies, songlines and dance is astounding, but it's relatively new in the bigger scheme of giving birth to babies in a, in a hospital, main, mainstream setting. And we just think that all of that just needs to come into the hospital and, and explode, you know, because it's just so vibrant. And we want to bring that, we want them to be able to bring that into our space because we learn just as much as we protect, you know. It, it helps us learn to protect better because that's our main role is to make sure our women are protected and safe while they're with us. I think um, Backrock is just one um, model of care available in Australia and there's lots we can learn from other um, Aboriginal-led models and Gina knows that I have become a little bit obsessed with the Gold Coast model, Wajung <laughs> Bajajams, um, and they've got some really great aspects um, of language revival incorporated into their model of care where they're um, creating, you know, um, resources in language and local language um, to support women as part of their pregnancy and parenthood journey. And I think that's really special. Absolutely, Storm. And one of the things that we did do when we realised what was going on with language for some of our women's is that we've got a partnership with the Darwin Hospital because a lot of our women's came through the Darwin Hospital and their interpreter services not only has the usual language interpreters, but they also had a group of Aboriginal interpreters for all the other countries that are up the top end, you know, and it was just amazing. It, and it worked for us at that time. It was great. So um, I'm wondering, Gina, what would your advice be to someone pregnant and an Aboriginal person who might be listening to this podcast? If someone is pregnant, um, in Victoria especially, but across, across Australia now, there are Aboriginal programs or Aboriginal hospital liaison officers in the majority of big hospitals and, and regional hospitals. Um, if you want to identify and have access to those services, um, find them. Look them up in the hospital. Ask people, where are they? Where are we? You know? Um, and then you can decide whether you want to identify within the system or not. Um, usually the asking the question um, is a big thing for hospitals and other government departments. Are you Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander? Um, that's the question that will get you to us um, in our hospital at the Royal Women's. But our, at Badgerbull of Willem, where I work, our door is always open. People can walk in and just refer themselves. But, you know... In our hospital also, our social work department are very good at letting people know that we're here um, and offering a referral to us. Um, but just know that there are Aboriginal workers in most hospitals across Australia um, that, that will be there to help you. Just ask. Storm, as far as we know, you're the only Aboriginal midwife working in this model of care in Victoria at the moment. How do you look after yourself and where do you get support uh, as you're working within a settler colonial white institution? Mm, great question. Um, I would love to not be the only midwife working in this space. Um, absolutely, I appreciate that there's some great other Aboriginal midwives at our hospital and perhaps this model of care isn't quite right for them at the moment with family commitments, etc. Um, but I guess my dream would be that 
programs like Bakarok would be staffed by all Aboriginal staff. For me, in terms of how do I look after myself, um, it's definitely something that I'm always working on. I think we're all always working on on that. Um, I like to be able to go and see my family is in southwest Victoria, um, go to the beach, get my toes in the sand, just reset. Um, and it can be really hard to switch off, I think, for Aboriginal staff because you're not um, able to leave as much at work as the non-Aboriginal staff. Um, but I think learning that prioritising your own health and wellbeing makes you a more um, available midwife and helps you be better at your job um, is something that it's really important to learn and prioritise because it's not being selfish, it's being, um, being the best version of you as a person and as a health professional that you can be. That's a beautiful answer, Storm, that, that self-care is primary, hey. Um, I, I, I was thinking about your um, comment about, you know, working in this model by yourself and and wanting to, to have more people like you around. What would your advice be, Storm, to people who want to enter nursing and midwifery from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds? Um, I think as lots of different advice that you could, you know, give or take as it suits you. I found for me one of my best supports at uni was linking in with the Aboriginal support um, department. Um, I went to Monash University and ULENG were really helpful uh, for me in terms of even accessing the course, um, giving me support and resources while I studied. Um, I think Monash actually has a health-specific um, Aboriginal support department now, which I think is new compared to when I was there. But I think most hosp- uh, most universities now have that support. Um, and then a lot of hospitals now are really interested in working with Aboriginal students in the view to helping them establish their health careers. So thinking about um, what hospitals are new or what hospitals you like to work at and seeing do they offer priority placements for um, Aboriginal students? Do they offer um, cadetship programs? Are they offering supported grad years? Um, Who do you become friends with? What advice can they give you, um, even if it's helping prepare for a future application? Um, That really set me up. And then I guess, you know, finding, you know, good peers and um, Katsunam has been a really helpful support for me um, and Wintunga um, Health Network has been another good support for me, um, keeping networked with my peers and learning from each other. And I have a very nice manager who always makes sure to check in about all of these things. This is for both of you. What would your advice be to a midwife or a nurse who is caring for an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander family? Read the room. Um, really pay attention to what's going on in the room. Um, and if, if you're lucky, you've been with this person for a little bit longer than just when the day comes giving, giving birth. So your people skills have to be really good. Being able to put somebody at ease long before that they're actually having a baby makes the whole process of having the baby so much easier. They trust you for one. They feel comfortable in all their glory in front of you. Um, And it's really important that that rapport has built 
before the time comes for baby to be born? I think my advice maybe is a bit more um, generic in that um, I'm a big believer in that the the culturally safe care can't just be offered by Badgerbullock, Willem and Bagarook. Like it's a whole hospital effort. So just because you can link a woman in with these services, and it's great that you do if the women or families want it, um, but you are are encouraged um, and it's kind of your professional obligation actually to offer culturally safe support. And if you need to engage in training to figure out what does that look like, if you want to ask your Aboriginal peers or Aboriginal support unit, what am I doing well or not well or how can I learn more in this space, then please do it. Um, And then also, yeah, I think just a little bit of time to reflect on your own unconscious bias. We all have it. Um, I'm doing a bit of work at the moment thinking about all these different racial microaggressions and things like that. And I think a big one that comes up for me is that Bagrock has been at the women's for, you know, five years and still no one can spell it. Um, it's, I think it's a very easy word to spell. I could be a little bit biased, but, it, you know, <laughs> words have power and names have power and these are names that have been gifted, you know, to us to use. That It's just a, a small way of, um, you know, spelling the words properly or learning to pronounce them properly. Um, it's just one way that seems really small but adds up to be really big things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of the the, the art of the word um, because how, how you communicate, whether it be with your facial images, your body language, um, if, you, if you can speak and speak the words well, um, which is also can be an art sometimes, but allowing yourself to be open to be friendly to people because that's a real art too for some. They don't know how to be friend, friendly, you know. And we, in a, in a place where we work, we should all be very, very friendly and approachable, no matter what race we are, because um, collectively we are responsible for them. So you're right there, Storm. It's not just our role to create the um, culturally safe environment. It's our role together collectively to create a culturally safe environment for all of us, staff and patients, and the wonderful colleagues that we work with, because we actually can't do this work by ourselves because there's not enough of us, Um, and that's another story. (laughs) Well, maybe maybe I can pick up on that a little bit and, and ask you, in terms of the microaggressions that you just mentioned, Storm and um, Gina, I'm wondering how can um, the broader staff body um, support Aboriginal staff? You know, how can they in, uh, ensure your cultural safety? I think management and higher up need to actually be involved at the ground level also. Um, they have to know what's going on in their hospital because the ultimate responsibility lays with them. But they also need to offer some solutions because they also hold the power there as well. And it's important that they do their jobs well. 
they're the people that we rely on to get things done and to make changes that need to be made. And so it's really important that they know what their jobs are and to do them well and to remove barriers for us because they have the power to do it. We can jump up and down all we like and, you know, who knows, we might get the sack or something. <laughs> but really, they have the power to remove barriers and that's just sort of coming from the management area that I am in. And so they have the power to remove barriers that, in, that will then enable us to do our work the way we need to do it. I would encourage non-Aboriginal staff to do their own research, um, often you know, relying on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff to do all the research for you. Um, you know, that's a lot of spoons for us. Um, you know, there's no one stopping you. The Google is a big World Wide Web or even checking in before you ask for some support and questions, um, you know, making sure that you go to the effort to finding out what programs are offered at your hospital. Um, recently, I ran into a doctor who um, wasn't 100% sure of my role but seemed to think that I worked with women who had psychosocial problems um, and I sort of had to correct them and say that's actually not my role at all. Um, it's very easy for you to find out what my role is um, and that's actually quite offensive that you would assume that we, the hospital has invested in a team um, to brand women problematic, um, basically. So I think um, we've all got a lot that we can learn from each other, but there's also a lot of learning that we need to do on our own. Just um, being mindful that there's not a lot of Aboriginal staff, particularly at our hospital, and that asking them to do all the work for everyone is, is too big a burden and that you could actually ease some of the burden for us and for the women who come through the service by doing a bit of, um, yeah, solo research. Absolutely. It is 2021 and people should know about Australian Aborigines by now. <laughs> so there's no excuses for not knowing. Is there anything you think um, I should have asked you that I haven't asked you that you think would be really important to talk about? I think it's important to also know that there are other services out there that we work with as the hospital, you know, the KMS services, the Koori Maternity Services, which is 21 years old. Um, they have mostly non-Aboriginal non midwives and Aboriginal health workers who are in the community and are attached, most of them, but not all, um, attached to the Aboriginal um, medical services, Aboriginal hospital uh, organisations in, in the communities. Um, there are a couple of KMS services based inside hospitals, I think two, maybe three, but the majority of them are in the community and in the organisations. So women can come to us well, we specialise here in Melbourne, but what we do here, they can have that in the community as well before they even come to us. Um, regional people come to us usually when there's a problem, um, if they can't give birth in their own in their own communities. Um, but their KMS service is there to help them while they're in their community too, plus all their other organisations. You know, we can't do what we do without them. Um, it's really important that we have that connection to the Aboriginal organisations because that's where our patient 
patients come from, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, I might add too, non-Aboriginal women who are having Aboriginal babies um, are able to use both our services, um, Badjabuluk, Willem and Bagarook, um, because there's a real special bond for, um, for non-Aboriginal women who, who live within the community or who are having Aboriginal children. You know, we need them to keep them Aboriginal babies connected to their communities. And so KMS services in the, in the region is a really important role to do that too. I think I'd um, maybe add as a tangent to what Gina was saying, that um, absolutely for some Aboriginal families giving birth um, at a tertiary hospital or in a hospital setting is, um, you know, the best choice for them that they're happy to accept. But it's also important, I think, that hospitals don't try and reinvent the wheel or white saviour these amazing um, Aboriginal caseload models because um, when we speak about trust and we speak about models of care, they have already been existing in Aboriginal communities, in the Aboriginal medical services. They're well-resourced, they're well-trusted, they're proven that possibly hospitals should look at more at their community partnerships and supporting community organisations rather than trying to um, build from the ground up a service that sits within a hospital environment. Absolutely, Storm. Storm and Gina, it's been incredible talking with you both and I'd really like to thank you for sharing your work with us. You can find more episodes, transcripts and links at ruthdesouza.com slash podcast. I'll also add links to Storm and Gina's work there. And if you enjoyed this episode, chuck us a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Next time on Birthing and Justice, I'll be talking with Donna Cormack in Te Whanganui Atara in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Donna has whakapapa to kaitahu and katimamoi. Her research focuses on racism and its impacts on health. Our system is not designed to capture information about its own performance or about the performance of providers, let alone more broadly about structural and societal determinants of health. Birthing and Justice with Dr Ruth D'Souza is written and hosted by me and recorded at my home on the traditional lands of the Bunwarung people of the Eastern Kulin Nations. Sound design and mix by John Chia, artwork by Ashong Atom, design by Ethan Sang, theme music by Raquel Salia, and produced and edited by the fabulous John Chia. Thanks so much for listening. Catch you again soon. This podcast is produced with the support of the RMIT University Vice-Chancellor's Research Fellowship Programme.